You're listening to The John Chi Show, hosted by three Korean-American adoptees diving headfirst into what it means to be adopted, Korean, American, and more. And now, here's your hosts, Nathan, Patrick, and KJ. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The John Chi Show. It is your boy, singular KJ. Uh, I just wanted to... Say we're still on a break, and we are bringing you this episode, and by we, I mean I, um, with some special guests, Haley Hedler and Zach Lubin. Um, This one is about Christianity, as I'm sure you can tell by the title, and just want to let you know, um, if you have had a bad experience with Christianity, then maybe you're not even listening to this, Um, but I don't think you have to go into it too too nervous Uh, i mean stay eyes wide open but i don't think we get into anything that could be really that traumatic i say that as a a privileged person who has yet to be traumatized by the church and who has not historically been traumatized by the church but um really we just offer kind of you know discussions on what it means going forward uh, how to be christian uh, exploring some christian traditions that are kind of outside of the mainstream um you know not the Hillsong, Elevation, Bethel-type churches, but um, a little more local, a little smaller, um, and kind of what that means. And so uh, my conversation is with two people who are very smart um, and who are deeply in the Christian sphere. Well, maybe not deeply in the Christian sphere, but I spent a long time thinking about Christianity, theology, those kinds of things. It's a really, really fantastic conversation, and I can't wait to bring it to you. Um, but I forgot to do the business at the end, so uh, follow the John Chi Show at John Chi Show on all of our places. Send us an email, John Chi Show at justlikemedia.com. Um, Patrick is in Greece right now, like r- literally as we, I am saying this and as you are listening to it, probably unless you're listening to it sometime in the future. Um, and Nathan is just being a dad. I don't actually know what he's up to besides eating Brahms that one time. Um, let's see. What else do I normally say? Uh, you can give us a call at a phone number. I don't even know. I'm so out of it. Um, you can, oh, support the show. I know what, what, what I say. Support the show at johnchishow.com slash support. Um, where you can find out all the ways to do that. And actually, I did want to shout out uh, some people who have recently bought us uh, snacks uh, on our our uh, donation platform, Buy Me a Coffee. Um, so that is Kim Sue, Alicia Maddie, uh, Jeff, and Sarah Dolan, which I realized that one says two months ago. But, you know, honestly, we're not very good at the important business of thanking people who help us do our thing. So thank you uh, to all of you. And there's one other person who just actually became a member. And that one, that person is Courtney S. So Courtney, thank you so much for becoming a member and supporting us long-term in a committed kind of way. Um, We really, really appreciate it. You can give us a call at, oh man, I thought I was ready. I'm not ready. Wait, yeah, I am. 972-677-8867 if you want to come and leave us a voicemail that would be fantastic um otherwise i think that's it so hope that you are enjoying pride month and having a nice summer it's real hot here in texas um but yeah we will see you we're still on a break um but i think we're gonna come back 
in i mean definitely in july but not the top of the month probably so uh anyways here's something to keep you company while you're waiting on us to get our crap together uh here is my conversation with Haley and zach Hello, everyone. Welcome back to uh, Not Your Average John Chi Show. I am your host, KJ, missing his co-hosts, Nathan and Patrick. Um, but today we have a very exciting, special episode of the John Chi Show. It's something that I've been wanting to do for a long time, and it really breaks every convention of what our show is, um, which I think is going to be really exciting. Um, so with me today is returning guest, Zach Lubin, and first-time guest Haley Hudler, and Haley is also our first uh, non-Korean adoptee. So big welcome to the show to the both of you, um, and thank you for being willing to jump on and indulge me in what is hopefully going to be a good conversation or could just be me asking answers and editing out incredibly long pauses <laughs> to pretend like it's a good conversation. <laughs> um so Haley, since you're new, we'll have you go first. Will you uh, tell us a little bit about your adoption in as many or few details as you want to get into? Sure. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Haley. Um, I, um, I use she and her pronouns, so the, the listeners can know that. I, uh, I was adopted um, from China in 1997. And I was adopted by a single by choice um, white American mother. And she um, she adopted due to wanting children, but also um, she had a hysterectomy um, in her mid late 20s. And she couldn't, you know, she couldn't carry her own child if she if she even wanted to. Um, And she chose China. She had a handful of countries she wanted to adopt from. She was given many different options, but she chose China. Um, I think she's told me that something about the culture and she found Chinese people very beautiful. And, um, she hoped that, um, she was just inspired in that way a bit, but also, um, knowing politically and what was going on for like my cause, I think every adoptive parent wonders, well, why is this child available for adoption? Like what's, what's the reason? And she knew that, um, my circumstances were due to the one child policy in China, which went on for 35 years, 30, 35 years in China. And um, that unfortunately left so many uh, children um, available for adoption for that reason. Um, so yeah, I grew up in Connecticut on the East Coast in New England, and I had I had an okay childhood. I well, sorry, that's a lie. I had a really good childhood. I, I, I did. I did. I did. Yeah, have you're a really like, good wait, childhood. now you're like, ah, I don't know. I have lots of feelings about my childhood. <laughs> I have but a lot actually, of feelings about it. Yeah, but, now I was um, like, back then, I was like, yeah, it's, it's a good time. It's okay. It's good. It's fine. I had a lot of vacations. I did. I just, uh, I had a really good childhood. And um, I now live in Chicago. So I live in the Midwest and I've been living out here for three years now. Um, and um, that's a bit about me. Thank you. Right on. Thank you so much. Um, so we're going to do another type of introduction since this is pertinent to what we're talking about. Um, and Zach, you can go uh, lead into this one. Will you tell me and the listeners a bit about your faith story? 
Yeah, I um, I was adopted into uh, like a middle class white family who were and continue to be part of the Churches of Christ, uh, which for those of you who don't know, and why would you know? Because we're a very small uh, <laughs> church tradition in the world, but we're one of the the few church traditions that was really kind of born in the U.S., like on the frontier in the 1800s. The early preachers would give communion to anyone who was uh, who wanted to take it out on the frontiers because rarely they would um, have a priest or someone from their tradition come through. Fast forward like 40s and 60s, it was um, um, always considers themselves. We always consider ourselves non-denominational. Uh, my church only functions um, based upon like the elders' decisions, and so you can have a lot of uh, diversity in thought and practice. You don't often see that in our churches. We generally kind of follow a um, a fairly basic pattern of worship. Uh, we like to pretend that we are recreating the first century church, right? So we speak where the Bible speaks. We're silent where the Bible is silent, uh, though uh, whether or not that's any kind of actual real practice um, or good theology is is probably up in the air. Uh, but I have been a part of this tradition my entire life. Uh, my parents uh, adopted me. I'm the first of three adoptees in my family, and uh, they really wanted to have a big family. And so my name, Zachary, means God remembers, which is my mom's uh, belief that God remembered uh, her desire to have a big family uh, through my adoption. And uh, part of my story is the elder, one of the elders of my church actually helped pay for uh, my adoption because my parents didn't have uh, oh, the wow. finances at the time. So really from the very beginning, my adoption and my story has been really intertwined with faith and a faith community in the churches of Christ. I've been a minister for 13 years in churches of Christ. I spent 13 years as a youth and family minister um, and now am a chaplain um, at Pepperdine, which is um, out of the tradition of George, uh, George Pepperdine, which is the churches of Christ. So, uh, baptized when I was 13, uh, I would, uh, not consider myself an evangelical though, uh, have a lot of overlap in my, uh, story of sort of growing up in the church and, um, the churches of Christ, I think in a lot of ways, um, get, uh, identified as evangelicals, um, in the larger sort of, discussions of how do you kind of categorize uh major faith traditions yeah absolutely um so with here's my my dumb explanation in case people are like what is what is evangelical i might be familiar with that term or not i don't know but like for me it's just like when i hear evangelical i just think like whatever you think of whatever you associate as like mainstream church in america that's probably evangelical so like all of the cultural phenomenons of like Christian radio and Hillsong and all of the like, uh, Lifeway slash what's the other Omar Dells slash like kind of Hobby Lobby slash you know, whatever, <laughs> like that's all of that, that whole like kind of cultural idea is evangelicalism, um, is born out of a essentially fundamentalist 
movement in the 40s and 50s. Um, I think especially with like Billy Graham, essentially it's just a rebrand of that. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's that's my take on what evangelicalism is. If you're like, I, I don't know what this is or <laughs> I don't know if I am that or what, that's not like, because it's not like a denomination. It's like this weird like right. cross-denominational thing. So hopefully we won't get, I mean, we'll get into the weeds, but hopefully we won't have too many words that we have to break down. Um, or I will just ask you, two people to break them down because you are both very intelligent and have done lots of research and thinking. And I just listen to podcasts. So Haley, I'll throw to you. What is uh, your faith story and relationship to the church? Sure. I, um, as well as Zach, um, grew up in a Christian family. I was raised uh, Christian, but differently from Zach, I, um, my type of Christianity, because there's so many different types, I would say. Um, the denomination I grew up in is United Church of Christ, UCC, which... Um, which is different than Church of Christ? Yes, which is yeah. different than Church of Christ. <laughs> okay, great. And United Church of Christ is... Um, it's been around um, more formally. It's on the newer side. Um, I know the exact like founding date. I'm such like a big nerd about the UCC, <laughs> but it was... Um, Founded in 1957, but um, out of four different traditions, they all kind of merged into one over time. But um, I would consider this type of Christianity very progressive, very left-leaning, very um, social justice-oriented. Um, I grew up like, well, I grew up with different ministers because you know how ministers kind of cycle through different churches um, every five to seven years or however so often the turnover is. But um, the big chunk of my faith formation, you know, when your kids are like middle school, high school, because I think that is when kids are actually starting to figure out, oh, do I believe in this or do I not? Versus when you're in elementary school, everything is just what it is. You don't really question it when you're young. My minister in my more formative, older childhood years, um, she um, was a lesbian woman. So I, I grew up with a gay pastor and a, a woman pastor as well. And so knowing wow. that I I always grew up in a church that was very open, and very accepting. And um, I've always really had a really great connection with uh, my religion. And I still to this day am very, very I have a lot of I have a lot of pride in my denomination, the UCC. And um, now, while currently my faith journey, um, there was a point in time early on in my seminary journey. That's why I moved to Chicago. I, I just recently graduated from Chicago Theological Seminary with my Woo. masters. Thank you. <laughs> so excited. Yeah. So I just recently graduated with my master of arts and religious studies from CTS, um, and. I, um, oh, I forgot how I was getting onto this because the claps really threw me off. <laughs> I feel like you deserve it, though. Anyone who, who you. got you, like, that, that's nice. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, but, oh, I remember where I was going. So coming into seminary, I was a member in discernment, which is, like, one of the more formal terms of um, someone who is trying to become a minister, trying to be ordained. So I was in that process really early on in my seminary journey, but then, um, Actually, and this will, I, I do think we'll talk, we'll get really in the weeds of this in this um, recording, but through coming out of my adoption fog was when I realized that going into ministry wasn't for me, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also not that unfortunate because I, I'm, I'm really happy that I'm on the path that I'm on now because it was my choice to stop the process. It was my choice to um, 
to something else. And I'm still so someone so um, curious about religions. I studied religion in my undergraduate studies, so not just Christianity, but plenty. Like I think I've studied five or six different world religions broadly academically. So I've studied um, as well as Islam and Judaism and Hinduism, Buddhism and Jainism. And so like I have a handful of like Abrahamic faiths that I, I know pretty well and then some Eastern religions as well. And I, I'm someone who's still very curious to find what the divine is for me and where wh- where is my spiritual home. Like right now, currently, I would still dip my toes back and forth between my UCC churches as well as like a Buddhist temple that I'm going to now in the city of Chicago. So um, that's a bit of my faith journey. But I would say overall, my experience with church has been wonderful and amazing. And some of the outdoor ministries I went to camp, summer camp that I went to in Connecticut, um, shout out. Uh, Silver Lake for any, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pass this podcast out to them, but, um, they're like a big part of my, uh, my, my life growing up when I was younger. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's, that's my faith journey so far. That's awesome. So, uh, I'll bring it home real lowbrow style. (laughs) Uh, I grew up United Methodist in a, um, a church that was pretty heavily influenced by a small, uh, worship school. I don't even know what denomination they're affiliated with if they are, but it's called Christ for the Nations Institute. Generally, uh, I guess like Pentecostal, certainly charismatic and worship styles and things like big emphasis on the spirit and, and that kind of thing. So it's interesting being in a, a mainline denomination, but having like a lot of members and even leaders having studied there or worshiped there or like fall in love with that. And so like having kind of that like mainline um, what, sorry, mainline denominations are like just not evangelical denominations. There's like seven of them. I don't know. Go Wikipedia later. Um, but yeah, so growing up in a mainline denomination like United Methodist, where there's like there should be a lot of like liturgies and whatever, and there was some of that, but then having just like this super like charismatic, spirit led, spirit filled worship experience, like it was a really nice blend for me. Um, and then the youth pastor who was at the there on staff um, during my formative older years, um, grew up as a missionary kid from the Baptist tradition. And so like, again, just like had like a lot of like bleed over that made me like exist in a pretty evangelical space, even though most of the things that I say wouldn't necessarily be in an evangelicals like frame of mind necessarily. Um, And so, yeah, so I I thought I was going to go into ministry and so studied to become a worship leader and then did that. And then I was like, this isn't for me. Um, just because like, I just, uh, if I'm being fully transparent, worship leading was boring. (laughs) Um, like the actual, like planning of it, I would like plan eight weeks and it would just, would just be done. And I'd be like, is this, I just have rehearsals now, you know? So whatever. Anyways. Uh, so yeah, so that was like, this isn't for me. Um, but stayed in church and, uh, and did all that, that. And then when I, came out of the fog and started the John Chi show and all of that very well-documented stuff. I also started wrestling with like, what even is faith and, and all these things. And, um, and I'm really so glad that I got connected with the two of you because I think that um, you both have represented for me ways to interact with Christianity and broadly the divine and not just be like, oh man, Christians all just suck. <laughs> um, so yeah, so uh, just to wrap it up, I grew up very Christian. I uh, grew up like one of those Christian kids, like was guitar guy, was uh, 
like in summer camps, I like knew all the memory verses and like won like Bible ball tournaments, Bible bowl tournaments and like had like metal, like I, so like, so at some point, like it's, uh, it's going to sound like very boastful of me to say whatever. Um, I actually, I just, I took my faith really seriously and uh, like I was a bright kid. And so like I was able to study like my head canon of scripture, like the, the people, the scriptures that everybody kind of has in their hearts. Like we, we don't really talk about Leviticus right now, but you know, like Galatians and Ephesians and whatever, like all of that, like, I feel like I, I just knew. And so working in the church and being in the church, like by the time I actually got out of college, I was like, I know my Bible super well. I just don't know like what there is to explore, but like my belief in this infinite being implies that there should be infinitely more to explore, but I'm just like hitting a wall and you know, whatever. So in that hitting the wall and then coming out of the fog, I was just like, oh man, there are so many more things for me to learn. And uh, then also I was like, I think all Christians suck, or at least all the conservative ones suck. And I know that there are not conservative Christians, but I'm not hearing their voices and I don't even know where to go. And like, I like, I like the idea of there being a divine being whom we can worship and, you know, all those kinds of things. But I'm like, I don't know if Christianity is my particular way into that. So, you know, like I just have like all these wrestlings with like, I think I want to be religious. Wait, I think I want to be spiritual and I don't really care about any religion, but I'm lazy enough that I don't want to learn a new religion. So is there a way for me to be a Christian and not suck is maybe the whole point of this conversation. But actually there's, there's something more. Um, and this is really the, the heart and soul of what we want to talk about is there's this really strong narrative of adoption in Christianity. I think that's why a lot of um, adoptees who are adopted into Christian homes or maybe like religious homes, but definitely Christian homes, um, are adopted right it's like this is the idea of like being adopted and whatever and like growing up when i was like just super into christianity i was like oh yeah i'm adopted so i already get it like that was like a point of pride and now i'm like oh god this has really screwed me up <laughs> um so yeah so i'm just curious and whoever wants to jump in can jump in what's kind of your current wrestling around the intersection of adoption and like how you have like experience adoption and like the narrative of adoption in Christianity. And actually I said, I said anyone can jump in, but Haley, you literally wrote your thesis on it. So maybe you should go first and summarize what, like the, give us oh, like gosh. the elevator pitch of your thesis of like, oh, wow. how that, that I guess I, is. yeah, I, I think I should have that prepped enough. Cause I've, I've spent so much time thinking about it this past year, writing my thesis. So for everyone here listening, um, for the, the, the podcast, the official title of my research is called A Critique of the Christian Theology of Adoption. And then like the subtitle underneath is um, what does uh, familial love, like what does it mean to expand familial love? And my conclusions from that, from like my entire year of research, is that yes, there are, it's, it's clear cut. There are very specific scriptures that say, that we sh that people should be adopting as well as God as the act of both also like God adopts like Christians into like the, the more like broader the Christian family, which I think those two themes are very blunt, very obvious, and there's not really much uh, other interpretation about that. But I do know that originally when some of those scriptures were written in the epistles, so this is like uh, Paul, um, 
he 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 wrote most of these um, specific lines that talk about adoption. He was taking a lot of inspiration from Roman, the Roman uh, culture in you know in biblical times of what adoption, how it functioned in that society at that time, and a lot of the adoptions that were going on. One, they're a bit different from like infant adoptions, how we see for the three of us, at least being adopted as children, as babies. And a lot of um, adoptees who are adopted like in their first couple of years of life, the adoptions that were happening in the Bible way back when a lot of those children had some authority within themselves to say that they wanted to join another family. Mm -hmm. So there was some there was a legal methods that they had in order to make that happen which is great because you know consent is awesome and we love when huh. we love when uh, <laughs> when people get to choose who's who's their family you know like even being in queer circles and people talk all the time about chosen family and mm-hmm. I think it's hard to talk about adoptive families as chosen family because who's you choosing it's most choice yeah adoptive wow. parents are choosing and not the children aren't really choosing that yeah. their adoption especially if they're infants um So I kind of, I bring it kind of back to thinking about Christian adoption, how we understand it theologically. When you join a faith or convert into a religion, that process of joining a faith is not the same as joining like a family. And um, and when I say joining a family, I mean like the legal rearrangement of like cutting ties between, you know, one, one being like, you know, cutting ties with one family coming into another one, that wouldn't be the same process as um, religious adoption. You don't get a tax break for joining a church. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) And I I also thought of something really interesting, a really good similarity of if, if, if real, and also um, to clarify, my research really only specifically talks about infant adoption within, within a U.S. context, and both domestic and international. So I don't really talk about foster care and I don't talk about older children. And I also don't talk about um, adoption laws within other countries around around the world because that would be way too big of a scope. But you know how um, in Christianity where um, monks, there are like Christian monks and some older and nuns and some of those Christian monasteries that I don't know if there's any currently in the USA, I think, they're located in other parts of the world. But you know how that type of Christianity where you're dedicating your entire life to like God and you're like kind of separating and you're moving away from your family. I think if you want to compare the legal adoption process that happens in the USA for babies and comparing that maybe to religious adoption, it's kind of like saying, oh yeah, so I want to become like a, a monk, like a Christian monk and then kind of leave my family that I grew up in that's that's like that's more similar to the process of like religious adoption to like uh infant adoption so I hope you all I hope this kind of makes sense but I'm only drawing this comparison to really show how outrageous it is I kind of I feel it is for Christians to say oh like great you're adopted that's awesome so I am too like I you know God adopted me we're all adopted yay like for people to compare like their own for for non-adopted people to look at adoptees and say, oh, that's great. Like, I'm happy you're adopted because so am I metaphorically by God. (laughs) But if we were really to kind of nail it down to a more accurate understanding is if you, someone wanted to become like a monk and 
become isolated from their family. It's like you joining a faith and, and you'd have to separate from something. You'd have to lose something in that process. And that's what I don't think people understand. Religious adoption, you don't necessarily have to lose anything. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the difference is like you, a thing is forcibly taken from you. Yeah. Whether you whether or not you wanted it to be taken from you, whereas in religious adoption, in the language of Christianity, like it's a, it's a thing that you choose to lay down, like you choose to literally step into this new identity, this new way of being, and so like there is sacrifice involved, but it's a choice that you've made, and so it's like a like it's a it's a grief maybe uh, mm-hmm. or a welcome change, but it's not like a well I didn't have a choice, like I just don't have this anymore. So yeah, yeah, accurate. Yeah. I- I also think it's important to keep in mind that like in Roman law, like adoptions were taking place, like based upon inheritance, right? Like one of the reasons why uh, a family might adopt another child would be like a male heir to continue on that family name, right? So as with a lot of things, I think with modern day Christianity, is that you just you you read something and you don't actually contextualize it. You don't pay attention to the fact that there are different laws, a different cultural context in which Paul is writing, or the metaphor that Paul is using for adoption. Like Paul um, in Ephesians uses like adoption language, and it makes sense because one of the things he's talking about is like being co-heirs with Christ. And so you can make the argument that what Paul is really trying to do there is kind of say, how amazing is it? that we are now adopted as believers in Christ to be co-heirs with Christ, which in Roman times would, was unheard of. You didn't adopt another child if you had a legitimate heir, right? So mm. like the idea of what well, I think what Paul's trying to do is like, like this, is, this is so outlandish that God would then consider us co-heirs with Christ. And I think towards the end of Ephesians, Again, Paul is a Jew. And so I think Paul's writing with like not an like a when you die, you get to go and play harps up in heaven kind of mentality. But he's thinking of this idea of like a new heavens and new earth uh, idea of resurrection and a physicality to it. And so there is, I think, less of a uh, I think it's hard to take what Paul's saying in any of his letters and say, well, yeah, that's what American transracial transnational adoption looks like. Right. That's people want to do that and they want to link that um, their uh, action to scripture. Uh, But I don't actually think that's what is, what is happening. I think if you want to build like a theology of adoption, you have to look elsewhere um, because you're not going to find Paul say like, yeah, this is exactly the way that I view adoption and it fits the 21st century or the 19th or 20th century views of American adoption, the way that we've experienced it as adoptees. Interesting. So here's the thing that I am wrestling with. Um, and I, y'all might be in totally different places. So this might, this might be a very short answer, but, um, I'm, I recently read, uh, Ulisa Arce's latest book, um, which is you sound like a white girl, the case for rejecting assimilation in America, I think is the full title. Um, but it's like, so she's a Mexican American woman, um, who lived for a long time as an undocumented citizen, um, undocumented person, uh, in the States. And her whole thing is like, I don't know. I tried so hard to assimilate and I tried so hard to 
become the the person that you wanted to be and like people would be like oh oh my god you sound so you sound like a white girl like then that was like a point of pride for her and then at some point like the a switch flipped and she was like i don't have to do this anymore and so that's kind of like the heart of her book and i i think to what your what your point is we're like Biblically, if we were to, if everyone was to really do our research and then we were also able to propagate the proper narrative of like, this is what adoption meant in biblical times and how, what it means for us going forward. And even, um, I think in your paper, you referenced Haley, um, another author who was like, really, it's a, a bit more like the foster system because like you still bring your whole self into this new family. You don't have to like forcibly remove some of that or whatever. All I have to say for me in, in my time with the John G show, listening to stories and, and also just like on the internet, like the thing that like I think we all feel when we come out of the fog and actually one of our other adoptee slash religious slash Christian friends wrote this is like it's really coming out of the fog of whiteness. And for us being Asian adoptees is where we just wake up one day and we're like, oh, shit, we're not white. <laughs> and and that means things for us about how we live our lives. Um, and yet like so adoption, I just feel like as it exists in America is just like the best type of assimilation like force assimilation because you get them so young they don't even realize they're being assimilated right um and then in christianity too like the thing that i wrestle with is like how do you do christianity without also becoming a white person is that possible like is that a is that a thing i don't know you you both have different like faith experiences from me but like in my experience i'm like evangelism like the conversion point is like forcing whoever it is to become more of a white Christian. But like, is there like, what's the way forward for um, Christians who aren't white and still are deeply faithful and don't lose themselves? I don't know. Yeah, I, that's an interesting question. Oh my gosh, there is music outside. Nice. (laughs) Bumping. Bumping in (laughs) Chicago. So now I, the question that I want to answer right now for you is like, how do I guess, how do people of color who are, whether we are, we were adopted into white Christian families, or we're just looking, looking at exploring Christianity, I think definitely, um, oh, I'm not, I'm not sure even what time on the timeline for when Christianity took on whiteness, because there was definitely, I, definitely the founding of the USA, Let, let's, let's make that for sure, that the pairing of the creation of like American Christianism. It all started like, with the Mayflower, huh? <laughs> kind of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like that was, it was all wrapped up in white supremacy as well, but I, I'm not going to dis- discount like the other Christian, like the black Christian community is very, very rich and very, very, um, there are parts of their church that um, is very rich and loving and has its own, community and there are Asian Christians. Um, I, I'm not sure how, there are definitely Asian Christians within the USA, but there, um, I also know with some of the migration patterns of patterns of how Christianity got over into different Asian countries was also very much like white colonization as well. Yeah. And it's hard for me to speak to, um, um, either of those communities, both the black Christians and there's the Latinx Christians who, uh, not all of them are Catholic, but there's a lot of um, Latinx Christians who are Catholic. That um, and I and I'm not Catholic either, so it's really hard to even interrogate or even have a good opinion about how they exist as Christians and not and not consider themselves like white people. Um, I think there's definitely a way to um, 
be Christian and not fall into whiteness. But I think each individual church most in, in the USA, they need to they need to explore the relationship that their church has had with white supremacy, both both uh, majority white churches or majority non like people of color churches. I think they also need to interrogate the ways their specific way they understand their own Christianity has been affected and um, molded by white supremacy. And um, but I, I don't think the gospel story inherently it's not inherently um oppressive in that way. It's so liberating. Like the gospel story is so liberating. And I think once people begin to realize when they imagine God or they imagine Jesus, it's not some like white man with blonde hair and blue eyes. Like that's not Jesus. And once people start to um, take apart, yeah, but the ways that Christians practice on the day to day, how they understand themselves to be Christian. Once you break it down, like past all the different identities and past the different oppressions that each individual person faces, there does, there, there is at the root core of it, every single congregation or every single community and every single individual has like an essence and something good and like the pure goodness that is in everyone um, that's found both in the, like the love of the Jesus story and found in Jesus as well as, and, and I'm bringing a bit of like the Buddhist teaching that I've been learning more recently as well as that there's like, the innate goodness that also that I've been learning about within Buddhism that's found within everyone as well. Um, and I know like, it's hard for me to like, I know our podcast is really specifically diving into Christianity today, but it's, it's, it's very hard for me to do that without bringing into bringing in my interreligious kind of broader understanding of what it means to be religious as a whole. Cause I, I don't think I can solely just call myself only Christian, Christian and just Christian. So um, I'll turn it over to Zach if you wanted to also Teach me your ways. <laughs> also, actually, Haley, while you were talking, it reminded me of a joke. I used to, not even a joke. It was just be a thing that I would say that people would laugh at because they thought it was so ridiculous. I was like, Jesus was Asian. And people would all laugh at me. I'm like, no, he was. Like, get out of here. He was born in Israel. Like, that's that's Asia, man. Like, yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think part of what is true for me, and I don't know if this resonates with you, KJ, and Haley, is my introduction to Christianity was was very much defined by white Christianity. Like my tradition was very American. And if you look right now, um, I often find myself in, um, I'll tell a story. I was at a, uh, uh, a lectureship my tradition does. And we had Sung Cha Ra come and speak, who was a South Korean theologian. And toward the end of his speech, uh, his talk, he said, um, you know, I have to, I'll, I'll stick around for five minutes because um, I have to get my son to the airport. Um, and so it concluded and he was saying hi to some people and I got up and was getting ready to leave. And someone approached me. It's like, Oh, are you the reason he has to leave for the airport? And I was like, no, I'm, I'm not his son. Um, but the space was so defined traditionally by being a white tradition that the only other explanation that this person had for me being in that room was not that I was part of the tradition listening alongside him. It was that I was, Dr. Ra's son. Like that was the assumption. So, I mean, that's sort of like, I think the tradition that I find myself in, I think there are ways to do it. I I wonder if in some way we aren't always reacting to 
that in some way in the U.S. in our churches, depending on the traditions that we're a part of. Like, I won't go to a Korean church. I don't speak Korean. I don't have the cultural context for it. So when I the churches that I've chosen to to work for and be a part of are part of the tradition that is predominantly white. What I can do is be aware of it the way that um, that narrative is um, uh, disciplining me. The script that 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 narrative is trying to help me or requiring me to tell or to speak, and so try to resist that. And I think one of the ways that I've done that is try to seek out scholars and theologians who are doing theology um, from uh, an Asian American perspective. And there are a number of people who are doing it, and <clears throat> I'm hoping Haley will be one of the ones who will continue uh, to do that and offer. Do it right um, now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, but, you know, I, I think that's that's the case. Now, um, whether or not the church will ever change, I don't I don't know. Like, I don't I don't I don't know if it's capable of that really in the U.S. I would like to say that it is. But as I, I get a sense of it, it's it's not really. And so part of what I'm doing is trying to find ways to be a voice that is speaking in the spaces that I find myself that kind of invite a different perspective, right? A different, a different viewpoint. I mean, in scholarship, there's a huge push right now. If you ever go to like a graduate school, you know, who you're going to read are a bunch of like old dead German guys. Like that's just who you're going to read. And biblical scholarship was decidedly Western European and American. And so the whole, even in academics, the whole conversation and narrative is really trying to figure out how to react to or how to dis deconstruct or how to have a conversation with like a prevailing sort of white theology, right? Like even the idea of like you say theology and chances are you say that in a room and the first five people that are going to be named as like the preeminent theologians are probably going to be like dead white guys. Or alive white guys. Right. Or Yeah, right. Or if you say, but if you say like liberation theology, but you have to put the adjective in front of it because it's not theology proper in the way that, that the academy thinks about it. So even in that sense, like you're always finding yourself pushed to the margins, even beyond like the church context when you get into some of these uh, larger conversations. Again, I, I agree so much with what Haley said. It's the, the gospel story is, is a story of liberation and freedom. It's a story of grace. It's a story that, um, unfortunately, I think has been co-opted by an ideology um, that I think plays very much into like our adoption stories, right? Not in the fact that, I mean, I was adopted in 82 and I don't think my parents were like, we're going to do this because we're fighting like the Ameri the Cold War through adopting our son. <laughs> they adopted you and were just like, Wolverines! Right, exactly. <laughs> but, like, historically, the fact that I was, that that adoption was possible is very much rooted in the Korean War, which is yeah. very much rooted in ideologies and Americans considering themselves exceptional and wanting to fight this ideological war between capitalism and communism and so like even that as a background right like the like we are so part of that narrative 
Um, and I think even, you know, the, the, the race question or the, the conversations of, of, of race are uh, really significant in American churches, right, in general. And we're seeing that uh, as well, but also in our stories of adoption. So what I heard both of you say was, uh, is it possible to be Christian and not become white Christians? And both of you went, oh, I mean, <laughs> technically. <laughs> but- it's technically, it's technically possible. But yeah. I mean, again, because, and, and I don't know if we can correct this, right? Because I, like, I'm part of this larger narrative. Mm. I can critique it. I can become aware of it. Um, but it also continues to function as a narrative as part of my life, yeah. right? Because I was raised by the parents that I did. I don't, I'm a free, I believe in free will, but I just don't, but also think like environment and all that stuff also shapes us. And so, uh, regardless of every, anything I do or don't do as a Christian now is, is in part a response to the story that I've inherited. I don't know. I think that's why I, I am wrestling with it so much. Like, as I, I think coming out of the fog, like, just like you said, it's just like this wrestling and response with like, this is how you were. And I realized there's probably a better way. Um, and no one gave me the freedom to imagine a better way because, and I didn't know that I could imagine a better way. And I think that goes back to like kind of racial mirrors and Haley, I love that, that you had someone who was, at least in the same gender spectrum, like on your side of the gender spectrum to look to, you know, like I was talking with this girl in my church and she was like, yeah, like, I just don't know. I don't see that many female worship leaders who I can look to for mentorship. I don't see that many female pastors who I can look to for mentorship, let alone women who also think the way that I do or who also, you know, like that, like just generally, like there's already kind of that, that gap. But then you go into like, I mean, personally, I can't think of a single a uh, person of color who was a spiritual leader for me growing up. I can't think of a single adoptee who was a spiritual leader for me growing up or, or for whom adoption was a, like they might've been adopted, but like adoption wasn't like an identity that they bore, you know, broadly. Um, so yeah, so I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. So, so that's where I'm at. And I, I keep, I keep messing with the idea of like, you know, maybe I should just like start my own church uh, because I think, I think there is that point of no one is doing it. And, and I wrestle with like, to me, from my perspective, I just see, although, uh, churches that are predominantly non-white and, um, Asian and maybe just like, well, no, probably just Asian, like immigrant churches, I think like exist in a specific way that I, like you said, Zach, I could never go to and feel like, like I really belong. Um, I could go to a black church, but that's like, I think just because of my upbringing, that's like not a place where I belong, even though theologically and like as a belief system, I might agree with, um, Latinx, same kind of thing. And so I'm just like, I don't know, there needs to, I wish that there was a place for me that had were more words than I have more a, a way forward. And maybe that just doesn't exist yet. Haley, you were like, I don't know. I can't, I can't really say I can't keep this strictly within the bounds of Christianity because I'm not strictly myself within the bounds of Christianity. I'm like mostly Christian with a toe in other things. And Zach, I think you're like, I'm Christian. I'm working through it. (laughs) Um, Just like in, in trying to find that balance of like, there's not really a place for us. And yeah. And I don't maybe believe 
I don't hold mainstream beliefs uh, or even beliefs that maybe the rest of my uh, denomination believes or, you know, whatever. I think for me, I'm just like, like I said earlier, I'm lazy enough to be like, I don't want to learn a new, a whole new vocabulary and liturgy and way of interacting with the divine. So like Christianity on some level is fine, but at what point do I start becoming like heretical and like cast off from the like the branch of Christianity and just like too far out there to be not Christian anymore. And which is why I just casually was like <laughs> in, in Instagram, I was like, how do we feel about original sin? Because I think for, <laughs> for me, like I, as I have learned to love myself, I have this whole thing of like, Oh, I'm not a bad person. But then I'm like, but what is Christianity without sin? I don't know. Haley, you're raising your hand, which is the first time I've ever seen anybody use that function. So yeah, bring it on. it's there. Bring it on. Um, yeah, no, I think there are two things you both said that I definitely want to challenge. I, I, I don't want either of you to like give up, I guess, on Christianity, even though like I myself am still figuring out how much, <laughs> how, how much of that's how the whole point of, of this podcast. Like, how like, much am I trying to claim? Christian Christianity as my religion. But what I want to ca- like challenge for both of you is I think, Zach, you were one saying you were unsure if, if churches could ever kind of redeem themselves, like in, in the direction, I guess, the, historically, the way they've been playing out for decades and centuries that you there was. And maybe I, we could probably play it back like 15 minutes ago. But I think you definitely said that you're unsure if there's a way to salvage Christianity right now. And then right. And then more recently, uh, KJ, you just said that "Eh, I don't really like any of the denominations right now. What if I just what if I just like start my own church or start my own understanding of Christianity? And because for me, I I still I, I only really grew up in progressive Christian spaces. So I see the work being done. Like I see all of the in my in my eyes, I guess I see all the ways that progressive Christians are trying to combat I guess, conservative Christians. And I hate, you know, I hate USA. It's all like right and left, Republican, Democrat, you know, it's so binary. And I I really hate that. But that's, you know, that's just the uh, culture society we live in at the moment. And I, and for me, when it comes, when it comes into bringing in my own wrestling with my own Christian faith and why adoption kind of halted that journey for me a bit, like if let's say, okay. And what I'm going to explain is that I, would have continued wanting to be a minister if it weren't for me not, if it weren't for me not understanding my adoption. And what I mean by this is that the kinds of Christianity that I grew up in, they're very anti-racist. They're very like queer affirming. They're very like, I see Christians who are really trying to undo these systems that we have in our, in our world that are harming people. And they're, they're so trauma informed. They're so mental health aware. They're so all these things, like they have all these like subsections of their ministries to really target some of like the most marginalized groups in our, in our society. And I guess where I would come in, whether or not I want to still officially like call myself an adoptee minister or whatever, (laughs) there's a subsection of that. But I do think that if I have the strength and I have the time, and if I gather some more friends, I guess, who are Christian and adopted, I guess. Start your own church. No, I'm not going to start my own church. I'm just going to, I'm just going to explain. I'm going to start off first with like more progressive churches that I grew up in originally and let them know, Hey, like you are, yes, you are preaching scripture on adoption, but you don't know the histories of adoption and the ways that it has been oppressive. Like Mm. if I could just take the time to 
let those Christians who are receptive to hearing that feedback and they can realize, oh, wait, you're right. Like maybe we shouldn't be talking about adoption in this way. Then we can make progress there. Because I I really think for me, that's my only, if I can just kind of see a bit of light in the direction of maybe some pastors realizing their, their understanding of religious adoption is not the same as promoting telling their congregants, okay, go out and adopt all these kids. Like if I make sure they understand that those two things should not be conflated with each other, that saving children or yeah, like that, like I think people also adopt because they feel children are in vulnerable situations, which is true. There are children in vulnerable situations, but individually going out and adopting, like thinking that individual actions could solve more systemic issues like poverty oh, and in yeah. like in like solving, you know, issues of racism. Like I, I'm really thinking, and I, I, I feel this really deep down to my core that being, you know, there's a lot of xenophobia in the world and like very specifically U S China relations are, haven't been great. And they haven't been great in many, many years that I feel like growing up, I think most of my community thought, oh, my, my family's great because they saved me from communism. Like they mm-hmm. saved me from such a corrupt government. And while I don't really a hundred percent, I'm still very pissed off at China. I mean, I'm, I'm mad that about the one child policy, there's no way I'm not going to be angry about that. But I also know being angry at that specific policy in that historical time period doesn't mean I have to betray and stay angry at the Chinese people. Because again, if I am angry with them, I'll, I'll, I'll also have this kind of anger within who am I as a Chinese American? Like I need to also come to acceptance of, yeah, the Chinese government, I I don't agree with what they do, but it doesn't mean I I don't hate Chinese China or the Chinese people. (laughs) Um, but anyway, I bring it back again to religion, back to Christianity and adoption that there are there are Christians doing like the work to undo all the harmful other Christian things. It's no, true. Yeah, like they're for there. Sure, for sure, and if for sure. I and for me, it's just kind of letting people know where their harmful understanding of adoption and theology combine and trying to alert people and hey, let's 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 not do this anymore. Then we can be on the right path. I just have to. And, and, and it's not like a one person job. I'm going to, I'm going to slowly um, that start one connecting. person is Jesus, our Lord. And Savior. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But I'll just no. stop it there and let, yeah, you go. You Haley, I would, I, I totally agree with you. And I don't, I don't want to come off as saying like, I don't think there's any hope. I just want to make the point that even if we work towards a better uh, possibility for churches in America, which I think is very, very much possible. And I remain a committed Christian and go to church and and do ministry. I believe that that's very possible. I do think in some way, though, like if the question is, can we totally escape sort of the way whiteness has shaped American Christianity? I don't think systematically that's possible because Mm -hmm. even the work that I do today is in reaction to a system that I've inherited. That's right. that's sort of the, the point that I'm making. It's not tension. not yeah. that it's all doom and gloom because I agree with you, and I've had experiences with with ministers who, when I've told them my story and I've said, "Hey, this is really problematic," they've been like, "Oh, let's talk," because I really want to know. Like, I I I want to improve. I want to be better at this. So I do think there's a great hope, and I think Asha probably would be important just and. We've said this in, in telling our stories, but we, I think all three of us represent very different forms of like Christianity in the U.S. Like I know uh, the United Churches of Christ are like 
like my the churches of Christ, the United Church of Christ. I mean, we're real far apart in a lot of ways <laughs> and our traditions. And so I want to be aware of that too. Right. So like, um, you know, a, a lot of times with conversations about Christianity, you always have to ask like, okay, what do you mean by Christian? Like, what, how do you understand that? Cause I have friends who are reformed, right. Who are neo reformed. And like, when we say Christian, like our concept of God is very different, right? Casey, you brought up the idea of original sin. Like if you're or like a reformed theologian or you come from a reformed church, like original sin, like total depravity of all of humanity is pretty consistent in, in their theology. That's not something I hold to. I don't hold to total depravity. I, I, I very much agree with like the, the divine spark or the idea of like the image of God or the goodness of creation um, that the Eastern Orthodox church, right. They have this concept of theosis, this idea of like transformation over time, becoming more like God, more like Christ, uh, which I think is what Paul is getting at in a lot of his epistles and a lot of conversations. But for a lot of American churches, that concept is not something that we really talk about because we were really are just like, do you know where you're going to go if you die tonight? Mm-hmm. And like the question is like, Oh, I don't know. Well, like, have you accepted Jesus as your personal savior? No. Well, then you're going to hell. To to right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So there's a breadth of Christianity that um, I think without getting too much in the weeds of different traditions, uh, I want to be aware of that because I, I think Haley's right. I think there are a lot of church traditions and denominations that are really doing some amazing work on diversity and equity and inclusion. Right. I think, um, and you're seeing like big, big splits, right. You're seeing splits within the Lutheran tradition and in the Methodist tradition and, you know, the Presbyterian tradition over some of these big questions. So there's a whole world where things are taking place. And so I choose to remain in the churches of Christ because it's, I'm, I'm kind of like you, KJ. It's like, I could go to a different church tradition but then I'd have to just learn all of the skeletons of that church tradition. I know all this, not all of, but I know a lot of the skeletons of my own church tradition. Yeah. Right. And I want to be part of, uh, part of the the group of people who are saying, let's be honest about the skeletons and let's work towards something better. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why my, my thing is I like, I was very aware when I decided to take the job to work for the church that I grew up in that we stand on very opposite sides of the fence. Um, even though I grew up there. And so it's interesting, like being there now and people assume a lot of things about me. I'm like, you have not talked to me in 12 years and it shows. And so like, I know that there are ways that Christians don't suck. I know that there are plenty of Christians who don't suck. Um, I think my, really my hope and my intent is uh, on the one hand to explore like, yeah, just kind of the broad question of adoption and assimilation. On the other hand, to say like, if you are in some way post-evangelical, whether that's no longer a Christian, whether that's like still evangelical, but like trying to be better about it, if you are, you know, whatever, wherever you find yourself after evangelicalism, I don't know, like what, what is out there for you and whether that's, um, like something like Haley's tradition, something like, uh, I'm going to do it on my own, like Uzak, if that's just like me or I'm like, I don't know, someone like, just tell me the gospel again. 
because I, I think I need to be reconverted if I want to stick in Christianity and I'm fine. Like in some ways, I'm like a better believer in the divine than I ever have been. And I'm like a significantly worse Christian probably <laughs> in terms of practice. Um, but yeah, I, I just like, there is so much in adoptee stories. And I think the bulk of it, because so many adoptees are um, spend their lives in the Midwest, um, that like realistically, I think the the bell curve is going to be some form of evangelical Christianity um, and some form of like really maybe problematic or just hurtful or trauma inducing or whatever like reaction to that. Or it could be fine, and they could be they could go to a, a really lovely local church, and that would be fantastic and good for them. Um, or it could just be that their active participation in Christianity isn't giving them the space that they may or may not need to wrestle with their adoption, you know, just because like, that's not a thing that needs to come up. I don't know. And I'm not trying to like force anybody to, <laughs> to come out of the fog. Like if you can avoid that, that brain hurt, then like maybe do that until you have the time. But yeah, wait, actually, Haley, you're like, I don't know. Like, I kind of get that. Do you feel like, do you think it's important for, this is totally different, but do you feel like it's important for adoptees to come out of the fog? Like to have that, like that cognitive right. dissonance? Yeah. Um, wow. <laughs> I uh, okay. I'll speak because I have friends. Just speak friends. if you're like, you know what? Just edit this out. Uh, and I'll cut it out. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, I'll, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. So, coming out of the fog, and I guess the way I've defined it or uh, I've understood it, Amanda, what's her name? Amanda Woods. Woods. Da, 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 da. She's great. She's like a great like adoption educator. I, I wish I could knew her full last name right now, but it, it's um, escaping my mind. But how she's defined uh, coming out of the fog and what that means how she's defined that is when adult a lot of times adult or like in their high school college you know older years of life and then into adulthood when adoptees kind of have the time to interrogate and learn learn more information about their adoption past the very very simplified answer of oh my parents couldn't afford me so they gave me where oh right. i was Something in the one child policy da, 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 yeah. da, i'm adopted and like it's a, like one or two sentences that quote unquote rationally explain why their adoption happened. So it's moving past that framework or understanding of their own adoption story and then really pinpointing, oh, this like my birth parents were in a vulnerable position because such and such oppressions that they mm -hmm. were facing, some some pressures from their grandparents that made them force them to give them up, some, you know, whatever, you know, stigma of single parents. So many of like U.S. adoptions, like the baby scoop era in after World War II, there are so many babies that were given up in the USA specifically because of pressures of single parent, like you, single mothers. And that's like very much tied to the patriarchy of what is understanding what family is. Cause I don't think people thought that single mothers could actually, like, there's no way. And also like wedlock, you know, children mm -hmm. out of wedlock, you know, they weren't officially married. So of course the child is, you know, this or that, like there's not seen as a credible or like a legit heir or whatever. But I say all of this to bring it back to um, once an adopted person ties their own story to like this larger systemic understanding of adoption, because it's I think most adoptees grow up in isolation thinking, oh, like I'm the only adopted person I know. Like there's right. no one around me who's adopted. Most of us believe we're in isolation and that there's no one else like us. But once adoptees kind of connect their adoption itself as a system and not and not not so much individualistic. And then, then we can actually begin to advocate for our needs and find out where the gaps are. Because some, there's a lot of adoptions that can, I think can be avoided. Like, mm. I think there are ways to preserve family. There's, there's a lot more ways to be, there's a lot more ways to preserve, like, 
preserve the original family. But in my case, I even thinking about my own adoption, I still think there's really no, I also feel like adoption is still kind of the best solution for my specific example. Cause I, no matter what, I still would have ended up with another Chinese family or I still would have right, maybe been right, adopted right. to another country. Like there's really no way in my specific historical context that I, I maybe wouldn't have ended up in a, you know, quote unquote better situation. You know, all this, I shake, shake my head at all that language because it also makes me cringe. But um, <laughs> um, but for me, coming out of the fog and it's been, it's been the best experience. Some, you know, the hardest, most painful thing I've gone through in my life. But there are adoptees who come out of the fog in their 20s and their 30s. And there's some who come out in their 50s and 60s, much, much later in their life. And I think I also have friends. I have adoptee friends who are still air air quotes still in the fog and i don't like to judge i don't like to not say that those adopted those adopted people who haven't really thought deeply about their adoption like their perspective on their own life is not invalid either Mm -hmm. and i also don't want to be that one person to push them to think differently because (laughs) one i one i know how painful it is yeah and two that I know that living in Chicago, many, many states away from my family, and they're in New England, I, I, environmentally, I feel like I was able to come out of the fog because I emotionally, physically, I felt safe enough to do so. Like yeah. I felt that I had enough support in my life that I was actually safe enough to actually begin that process because I think growing up, especially adoptees who like haven't really had that time away from their family, had grown up into their own self and figure out who they were as an adult if you don't have that separation especially from your home environment or the hometown you grew up in or the family you were raised in you don't you still probably don't feel safe enough to do this process like emotionally mentally and um i would say if adoptees never let's say adoptees never ever never ever think about their adoption they never quote unquote come out of the fog then that's their life and if they if they view their life as happy and great and wonderful then great yeah but absolutely. but if they if they go through this really really gruesome painful process but but feel better because like for me I can say going through that all and I'm still going through it I don't think it's like a one and one and done process I know that I'm I'm just becoming so much more confident and secure and mm-hmm. into this really really authentic version of myself that I'm 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 happy with the progress that I'm making and um, so that is my answer to that. It's, it's a both and unfortunately. <laughs> oh, so. so holy of you. Uh, can, can, I, can I ask you a question, Haley, about like, and I, I so appreciate the answer that you gave about like not wanting to force people into it. One of the questions I have about for American churches who on one side have been, uh, like a big proponent of adoption, right? Like, like a lot of people are like pro adoption. We've seen it in conversations about Roe v. Wade, even with some evangelical pastors coming out and they're like, well, yeah, adoption's the answer. And you're like, ah, oh, shut up, please. Um, you don't know what you're talking about. All right. One of the questions I have is like, one of the reasons why I think so many adoptees who are adopted into Christian families stay in the fog longer is because of the way that the church has continued this narrative of saving, right? They don't actually create space for the adoptee to question, right? Depending on your concept of God and predestination and sovereignty, like this is God's intent or God's will is a lot of the language there. So 
the question I have is, if we do that work as Christians, if we do those work in our churches, aren't we then advocating in some way that we're, we want to create the space that kind of invites people to come out of the fog in some, in some significant way? If that's if what we're asking our preachers and teachers and <sighs> churches to do. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so in some ways then what we are saying is that like coming out of the fog is, 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 is probably something that's really, I don't know, we don't want to force it, but like, even when I think about what I'm trying to do in the church, right. When I'm in, in conversations is what I'm really doing is I'm trying to create the space for people to come out of the fog. Yeah. I'm telling my story in church set settings and, you know, speaking engagements where I'm trying to invite other adoptees to say like, look, I actually so believe in the story of Jesus and this idea of like identity in Christ and the importance of baptism that I actually think that's liberative enough to you. Then you have the ability to dive back into these questions, right? And not be like, am I loved? Because you are loved because of Jesus, end of story. And so you have the freedom to actually jump back in and ask these really difficult questions, right, of the church and of your parents and of the whole system that brought you here. And that's not to say, like, you just crap all over that system. Like, I'm not saying that, right? But we have to live in the tension and the ambiguity of saying, like, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty happy. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm married. I'm almost 40. I have a kid. Like, I'm, I'm. Like I'm generally like very like uh, I'm not like freaking out turning forty. I'm like I'm I'm, I'm pretty good. Like You're I'm like I'm on my, my way life. to that white picket fence, baby. Right. Like it's, it's <laughs> happening, right? Uh, but also at the same time, having to be honest about like that's not true for everyone, right? And is my theology or my concept of God, the divine, big enough to say like, oh, there's some questions I can't answer there, right? Like I one of the the problematic parts of my story as an adoptee is like my mom named me Zachary, which means God remembers. And for a long time growing up, I was like, that's a foundational part of my faith. And then I reflected and I was like, well, if God remembered me, what about the children who weren't adopted? What about the children who are adopted into really terrible situations? So to make a claim about God's providence in my life is then also beg the question, what is God doing in other, in other people's lives? So Haley, like to, Haley, like to call her Haley. she raised her hand. <laughs> this is the most courteous John Chi show ever. Nathan and Patrick would just yell at me. <laughs> I, I agree with you, Zach, that, yeah, I, by talking to churches or church communities and kind of um, wait, do you, JK? No, I don't uh, have anything JK. to say. I just wanted to, <laughs> okay, okay, to, want to see the function. hand raising. Okay. Um, just like, uh, yeah, I think I am calling on churches to create the space for people involved in the adoption triad. You know, it's not just adoptees. It's like a whole process for like adoptive parents to like come out of the fog or like mm-hmm. their own understanding of w- their motives for adopting, what they originally understood adoption, the purpose for it, why they wanted to do it. Like they go through a kind of uncovering as well. And I'm going to say this really um Plainly, because I it, I feel like it's a big overarching theme that almost every single adoptee faces is that the reason why children who are adopted don't feel comfortable talking about their adoption in a negative way, only in the praise way, is that they think that if they speak negatively about adoption, there will be 
you know, will be abandoned again by yeah. their ado- adoptive family. Mm-hmm. They think if I say anything bad that that there's any negatives that come with this, then that I'm going to be left with nothing, and that that and the society or my neighborhood or the people like that people that know my family, they'll think badly of my parents. If I say things bad, it'll, it'll say, Oh, it'll show that my, my adoptive parents failed, that they, they weren't the best parents ever, that they didn't successfully accomplish that mission of raising up a, an adoptive kid. And I think a lot of adoptive parents think, Oh yeah, like I'm going to adopt this child. They're going to be great. And everything's going to turn out like the way a a nuclear biological family would Mm -hmm. turn out. And I don't think adoptive parents, they need to be educated enough in the sense that, well, I don't think agencies, adoption agencies leave out, a lot of them leave out the fact that adopted kids, we are not just that initial separation. And for, I hope maybe both of you read The Primal Wound by Nancy Berry, maybe. But, or maybe you've heard of it. I have so, like, I specifically stayed away from that. I'm like, I'm not ready really? for this yet. I yeah, think it's I just, so I'm, great. I think I'm just it's not ready book. to enter into that conversation because no, I'm busy no. figuring out if I'm still a Christian or not. <laughs> oh, sure, sure, sure. But I think from that knowledge of that book, and I'll touch on it a bit because I, I think I've gained so much from that book, is that that initial wound, that separation from child and gestating person, we're already our sense of security and safety and coming into the world, it's already, it's already broken. Like it's literally already broken from that original separation. And so if adoptive parents think they can come in and heal us or fix that wound of ours, it doesn't really work out. Like I don't think they're given enough tools to actually assist in our healing with that. Cause in, in a very simple metaphorical way, like let's say you have a plate, right? You have a, a China plate. It's, you know, it's beautiful. You drop it and it breaks, but then you, you, you know, you gather the pieces, you glue it back together. The plate is still the plate, but it's just not, it's not as, it and just that's wasn't what, what it was. When you have, when it you just lose wasn't. your virginity. So. <laughs> oh my <laughs> God. That just made me think of that, uh, that metaphor in James. Hey, yeah, I went there too, oh man. I was God. like, oh my gosh, we're yeah, talking yeah. about like purity all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, oh, I didn't I just, know that people like, use like plates and, and no, the virginity. Straight kind of up, thing. straight up like Jane the Virgin style. He's like, and this is what happens. You take the flower and you crumple it, and that's what happens when you lose your virginity. And that's why you should never have sex. Uh, I was like, oh no. <laughs> just like, you know, the plate is it's it's still the plate, but it's not as it's not it has same. glue marks now, and it's not the same as it was before. And I think adoptive parents believe that they can get the plate back to maybe the condition it was before that original separation, but it's just not possible. Yeah. And so adoptive children are nervous. Like they don't want to go through the coming out of the fog process because they're afraid of abandonment. Their adoptive parents think if their child starts questioning that they adoptive parents feel a, they're scared of abandonment from their adoptive child. Mm-hmm, yeah. And I think that's a real fear in bringing, I just want to mention this in the podcast, because uh, if people never end up reading my research or my thesis, I, I just want people to know there is a there is a good concluding message, I think, within it. And that is that our understanding of family is so strict that there are only there can only be two. There can only be two parents because even the single the stigma stigmatization of only like a single parent, mm-hmm. it took such a long time for that to go away. But I think ad- adoptive children have more than two parents. Like they're going to have three or four, like they're always going to have their adoptive parents and their birth parents. And I think trying to embrace all of those parents as like valid and 
uh, significant people in the lives of adoptive children. It's like really important to emphasize that because I think adoptive parents think if children are thinking about their birth parents, it means they don't love them. Like it has nothing to do with the, the love that they have for their, their adoptive yeah. parents. It's love just is not that, a zero sum game. Yeah. Like it's just that that child will have multiple parents. And I think we need to embrace our understanding of family that has like that has more than two parents. Cause I, I don't think denying, denying one parent set is going to make the child feel any, you know, whole or healing or anything that they need to do to fully understand who they are, both with their nature and their nurture. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're out of time and I like, we just got to a point where I'm like, I could go on for like three more hours. Like I just got, got a whole, whole w- second wind of just like, yeah, this is what I want. This is what I don't want to talk about forever. Um, Yep. I thought I, I even thought I had a wrap up thing, but I don't. So uh, we just have to end it here. And I wish I remembered my question because I'm sure it would have been a great thing that would have made us go over time. But uh, I hopefully hopefully you enjoyed this, um, the two of you and hopefully listeners, you enjoyed this as well. Haley, if people want to find you and if you want them to find you, where can people where can you meet on the Internet? I both my Instagram and my Twitter are the go to social media. So my Twitter being Miss Haley Hudler. So that's M-I-S-S-H-A-L-E-Y-H-U-D-L-E-R. So that's my full name for on Twitter. And then my um, Instagram is Hazy Huds. That's spelled H-A-Z-Y-H-U-D-S. Zach, how about you? Uh, Pretty much just on Instagram. At the beginning of the pandemic, I had to quit Twitter. It was just like... (laughs) I was spiraling. I was like, I couldn't handle it. But you can find me on Instagram uh, um, at ZJ uh, Lubin. Um, and that's where I do most if I do any kind of social media. I, I pretty much just like watching other people's feeds at this point. And every now and then I'll post like a book I'm reading or uh, a fancy coffee I'm drinking <laughs> at the time. Solid. You can find me at KJ Relke wherever uh, I can be found wherever I am on the internet. I don't even remember what I say at the end of the show. Whatever. Um, the Both of you, the, both of Haley's and Zach's handles will be listed in the show notes. Um, thank you so much for listening. Do you guys have anything you want to plug? Anything? Any speaking engagements? Pe- places people want to buy your thesis, Haley? I don't know. I don't know how academia works. I don't know. Whatever. Everyone should reach out and try to get Haley's thesis. So yeah. and I, I want to know, Haley, are you is like PhD work next? Like you're not doing ministry. So it's like, man, are we, are we going for the PhD right now? PhD is not in my future at the moment, but I am call. trying to figure out how I'm going to go about distributing the research. So the thesis itself is like 40 pages, which is really a big hefty piece for your average reader to get through. I may try to it's do an article spaced, though. So I feel like that's pretty helpful. <laughs> Like I when I do, realized that I was like, oh, wait, this is only 20 pages. I can do this. It's fine. <laughs> so I, uh, I may uh, want to do an article in Chris- Christian Century and may- I- I've been debating about taking my research and putting it into academic journals, like a handful of yeah. religious journals and like adoptee journals. But I, I know that there's a lot of editing in order, like there's a lot, there's a whole nother thing with academic journals. And I also don't want to give copyright. I don't want to lose my copyright to some of these right. journals. So I may just, I may just freely distribute it because honestly, I want like people, I just really want people to read this work. So if anyone listening wants to reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram and say, Hey, listen to the podcast. I would love to read your thesis. Please send it over. 
I probably and will. Ask because... for her Venmo and tip Aww. her. Uh, yeah. Be yeah. good about it. It doesn't have to be well, a lot, you. but just be good about it. Aw, well, I appreciate that. Um, thank you. But yeah, just just um, I'll I'll give it out to almost everyone, pretty much. Solid, Zach. Anything you want to plug? Nope. <laughs> I'm right. not. I don't. I haven't written written a thesis recently. Fair. So, but I would love if anyone would like to have further dialogue about faith and adoption. It is something that I care very much about and have done. I won't say a lot of research, but I've done a fair amount of research and thinking about it. And so I'd love to, to talk to anyone who is willing to, to have that conversation. Yeah, uh, I'm just here to make jokes, mostly um, keep the conversation <laughs> moving and help translate things. But yeah, I, I, I have really loved being able to uh, build our friendships together, um, whether it was through Clubhouse or Instagram or the Janchi show itself. Um, I think both of you along with others have been really key voices, especially for me navigating what it is to be Christian and a person of color and adopted and not suck. Um, so thank you too, for not sucking. Um, and for being wonderful human beings who talk good, uh, <laughs> and for indulging me in this extra special recording of the Janchi show. If you like it, let us know. Uh, if you don't like it, I guess also let us know, but let us know differently. Don't be, (laughs) don't be loud about it. (laughs) Um, We're still on our break. Happy pride to everyone who is listening, who is celebrating pride, which should be all of you. Uh, We'll see you in July. Until then, John Chi Hale.